Well, I want to I want to play the role of uh, Gollum if you're familiar with Tolkien, or or maybe the Mad Hatter if that's more familiar to you, and and pose a couple riddles to you just to get you get you thinking today. There's just some of you are good at this stuff and you'll get it right away. What gets wetter and wetter the more it dries? Anybody know that? Ever heard that riddle? A towel. Good. All right. We'll start easy. I'm weightless, but you can see me. Put me in a bucket and I'll make it lighter. What am I? I know you're only hearing this once. A hole. Okay. All right. Then this last one. The man who invented it doesn't want it. The man who bought it doesn't need it. The man who needs it doesn't know it. What is it? Ah, good, Jeff. All right. A coffin, a casket. Um, all right. Well, the sermon title this morning, that's just free. I don't know. Um, sermon title this morning is, is a little riddle and you've probably already figured it out. Um, and the question is, how many kings does it take to stop a bully? We're in second Kings chapter three this morning. We've been working our way through the books of first and second Kings for, for several months now. And by God's God willing, we'll complete that journey this spring. Um, but in a book called Kings, we expect to see a lot of them, and we do, even in this chapter, chapter 3 of Second Kings. The vassal king of Moab, uh, Mesha, he is bucking the authority of the king of Israel in this chapter. He's really not a bully so much as he is a rebel. Um, and then the king of Israel won't have it, so he's here, and, and he gets the king of Judah to join him, and, to, and he forms this little coalition with the king of Judah and the, the other kind of vassal king of Edom, and they join him in an attempt to put King Mesha back in his place. And so did you keep track through this story? Uh, how many kings does it take to put Mesha up against the ropes? Is it three? Is it four? Maybe Mesha is his own worst enemy. And, well, the answer is one. And we've already kind of alluded to that this morning. We gave that away and when we read Psalm 47 earlier, it's the king with the capital K. It's God. Um, Psalm 47, for the Lord, the most high, is a great king over all the earth. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. God is king over all. And, and the Lord is this king who exercises this, his, his sovereign authority over all kings and all coups who would rise up against kings. And as we'll see in this text this morning, God exercises his, his unrivaled kingly rule through his prophetic word. That's what's going on in the context. I know it's been a couple weeks, but this text is it's continuing to show us that the prophetic gift that Elijah had from God has been passed on to Elisha and taken up by him. Elisha does the same works that Elijah did. Elisha speaks this God's word just like Elijah did. Elisha confronts kings just like Elijah. Elijah, Elisha performs miracles just like Elijah. We're going to see that next week. And so, but it's not really about Elisha per se. It, it's about the, it's about God. It's about His word that cannot be stopped. He's exercising His kingly rule. By means of his word that cannot be thwarted. 
God, the constancy of God's rule. That's really what we see in this chapter with the changing of, of prophetic mouthpieces. What's constant is God. And so God accomplishes his sovereign purposes. He exercises his kingly rule through his word. And there's nothing more that you and I, nothing that we need more than the word from this king. That's just as true then, today as it was then. We need the word from this king. So this morning what we're going to see, we're going to continue to behold our God in this section. And we're going to see four traits of this king and his rule in and then under each of these points and each of these sections of verses, I, I just want to, and what I've given you in the outline, is just a couple implications that, that flow out of that, applications for us. So that's what's in front of you if you want to take notes this morning. The first, the first thing we learn about this king in this section, and I know we haven't even read the chapter, we're going to kind of work our way through it, is this. is that the king is not, this king is not okay with just okay. Uh, that, that doesn't cut it. You know, we... We're okay with just okay, aren't we? We, we kind of like, we're, we're, we kind of prefer average over extreme in, in most areas of life. We, we have as a, a deeply entrenched value of ours to be balanced. And, and, and often what that means is, is we do not want this, we don't want to characterize us or others, this all-consuming, single-minded, zealous, intensely focused commitment to one thing. We, we, you need to be balanced in life. And, and that is obviously true and something that is important in a lot of ways. But even as Christians, we can, this value can creep in and be corrupted and we can make mediocrity an aim of our life. We, we don't want to be rebels against God, but we also don't want to be radicals for the Lord. Uh, we, we just kind of want to go with the flow, go to church, hold some family values, keep it comfortable, keep it relaxed, but don't really run hard after a God in a way that will really make any kind of waves. And so we, we just want a nice mix of following Jesus kind of casually and yet blending in with the culture and the world around us. We don't want to stand out, just kind of go along. Christianity is kind of good for me and my family, and so I'll that. that but I, I want it in small doses, in balance with everything else in my life. We we may be okay with just okay. God is not. He, he's not, and and this is one of the things we'll see in these opening verses. The writer wastes no time in assessing the next king of Israel's reign. The next king is Jehoram. Remember, it was Ahab, his son. Uh, Ahaziah reigned after him. We looked at this a few weeks ago in chapter 1. And now his brother, his younger brother, uh, Jehoram, also Ahab's son, reigns after him. And the writer of Kings goes, goes right to the most pressing issue in evaluating this king's reign. What is it? What's the most pressing issue? Is it his economic policies? Is it his views on education or... Or healthcare? Is it, is it infrastructure improvements? How many roads did he build? No, what, what is it? It's his worship. It's his worship. Look in verse 1. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. Now, some of your translations may say Joram instead of Jehoram, and that's, that's simply, I think the NIV translates it this way. It's to differentiate this king from 
the king with the same name in Judah. And so Jehoshaphat had a son who was named Jehoram, and their reigns actually paralleled for a while, so it can get confusing. So the NIV and maybe a few other translations have just altered it just to show the distinction, to keep them straight. Verse 2, he, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, Ahab and Jezebel. For he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, and he did not depart from it. Now, the writer does a couple of things to... to to, to, to make his point here. He, he first, he uses this little Hebrew particle two times here. It's a little particle rock. And, and it's it translated only most often. Only. He did evil, verse 2, only or though not like his father and mother. And then verse 3, he put away the pillar of Baal only or nevertheless he clung to the sin of Jeroboam and did not Apart from it, this is this is what the writer's saying. He's he's not as bad. He's not as wicked as he could have been, but he's not nearly as righteous as he should have been. That's what the writer is doing with this, with the way he's phrasing this. And he also uses a little Hebrew verb, and he repeats it also twice. A little verb suur. It means to to turn away. It says he put away or he turned away the pillar of Baal. And yet, in verse 3, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam and he did not turn away from it. He did not depart from it. So he's, he's showing it's, it's better, it's okay, but okay is not enough for this king. It's not enough. God isn't okay with just okay. The text shows that there are these kind of degrees of evil it's, it's better to not be as bad as Ahab and Jezebel. That's always better. It's better to have less Baal worship than to have more Baal worship or the same amount of Baal worship. It, it's, but it's not good. It's, it's just better in a relative sense. Because in the coming weeks we're going to see that Baal worship continues to, continues to be alive and well in the land. It, it seems that Jehoram kind of tolerated the worship of Baal though he didn't personally participate in it. And so his sins are his sins are kind of muted compared to wicked Ahab and wicked Jezebel, but he still he clung, the text says, to the sin of Jeroboam. That word clung, it's the same word we find in Genesis two twenty four of a of the man clinging to his wife, cleaving to her. He's clinging to the sin of Jeroboam. You remember, I know we're going back into 1 Kings. The, the sin of Jeroboam. Jeroboam is the one who, who after the, the nation divided, he, he had these golden calves made. And, he, and he didn't want the Israelites going back south to Judah to worship the Lord in the temple. So he made these golden calves. And, and what he developed was kind of this hybrid religion. There were elements of of worship of Yahweh and elements of this golden calf worship. And he had it blended together in this kind of religious syncretism. It was, a, it was more refined paganism than you found in the Baal worship. But it was, still, it was still paganism. And what I want you to see is, even with that qualification of verse 2, God has zero patience for idolatry. He, he, he zero patience. The Lord isn't satisfied with, with anything less than just absolute, loyal, exclusive devotion to Him. 
I think one commentator says it well. He says, he says, it's as if a writer throws his pen down in disgust and hollers, that's not enough. It, it won't do to go around saying it's not as bad as it could be. Anything less than thoroughgoing, faithful, first and second commandment worship just won't cut it. That's, that's what we see in these opening verses. That's what we learn of our king. He's not okay with just okay. I'd say just the implications for us is one would be is purge your mind of any thought that God somehow grades on a curve. We love it when teachers do this. Do they do that anymore, students? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. But it's just, just because you're better than others doesn't mean you're good enough to get by with God. Jesus made this very clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, and let me tell you, it does not. Unless it exceeds them, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Be Perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You won't be able to stand proudly before the Lord and say, well, at least I didn't do fill in the blank. Or, or I'm, I'm, I'm not that good, but I'm a whole lot better than they are. That, that's not going to cut it. Isaiah says all our righteousness is, is filthy rags before the Lord. So so where's the hope if nothing, even our good stuff doesn't 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 is not enough. Where is the hope? What, 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 what hope do we have? I want you to hold that thought. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. I just said, God, God doesn't grade on a curve. Get that thinking out of your head. You need more than that. You need, you need a perfect righteousness. What, a righteousness you don't have. Okay, I, I got to hold off on that. Uh, second implication is, is know that God cares as much about the idol you're hugging as the one you're smashing. Ah. I would say as much or more. Don't, don't think that you can impress God by letting go of some evil uh, idolatry or evil habit or addiction in your life. And you can impress God by letting that go while you cling to others and hold them close to your chest. doesn't work. You, you can't just give up a more def- depraved form of idol worship and, and say, well, I'm no longer an idolater when you're holding on to others. It's, it's, not, it's not enough. You can, you can just, by example, you can smash the idol of money love and you can, of wanting to be known by the things that you have. And so you can sell your sports cars and downsize your house and, and give everything away and live minimalistically. And you know what? You can still be holding on to the God of approval because now you want to be known for the things that you're willing to let go. It's, we're sneaky. We're, our hearts are idol factories. And so, 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 you, you can smash the idol of alcohol or drug addiction. And yet you can cling to the idol of pornography and sexual uh, fantasy because it's not illegal. It doesn't hurt anyone, which is an absolute lie to say things like that. It's, it, you, it, there's a, the, this world is strewn with the wreckage of the human carnage of, of young ladies whose lives have been absolutely destroyed by the trafficking, human trafficking industry. It's fueled by men sitting alone and, and men and women sitting alone behind computer screens doing something that doesn't hurt anybody. And, and, and your spouse is affected, your parents are affected, your children are affected, this whole church is affected. 
You know what I mean? It's, it, our lives are affected by what you do in secret because your usefulness to God and your, your ability to use the gifts that God has given you and the, the joy and, the, and this, this, this life that's lived in fullness and freedom of Christ, it's not there because of this idol you're holding on to. All right, I'm straying down a road, but, I, but that's a lie. But, but don't think that you can, you can forsake one idol while holding to another's and think it's okay. Don't live your life trying to figure out which idols God will let you keep that aren't that bad. No, our, our, our posture, our, the way we live should be just get rid of it all. I mean, I know it's a constant process. I'm not saying we have reached the state where we no longer struggle with sin. It's not it, but our, but but we shouldn't be content with just kind of living this shallow, miserable existence, holding on to pretend gods. God says, "Throw down your dead idols, and you cling to me. Cling to me, the living God." Turn to First John real quick. First John chapter five. I, I want you to see these words, and I want you to be able to go back to them and, and meditate on this passage later. Uh, it's just so. So appropriate in light of the context of what's going on here in Second Kings. How intolerant our God is of evil in our lives, and yet how tolerant we can be. But first John five, this is the, the last words of the of, of this epistle. Verse nineteen. He says, We know, listen to these assurances, these wonderful truths, wonderful realities of our identity. He's just pleading with them to understand who you are in Christ. He says, we know that we are from God. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the only wise, true, living God. We are from Him. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, the deceiver, the liar, the the, the source of all idolatry. And we know, we know that the Son of God has come and He's given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. You've got to get that before you even read this last verse, which is the only verse I thought we would read. But listen to this. We are in Jesus Christ, the only true living God. Therefore, the last words of his letter to this church, he says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We need that word, church. It's not that it's not that God comes to us. Don't think like this that God is coming and he's asking things from you all the time. Like he's this angry ogre and he just wants to kind of kill your joy and he's grumpy and he's he's this cosmic killjoy. That is not it. God comes to you and he and he has things that he wants for you. He he wants you to know, to be in and to enjoy Jesus Christ, the living God. To know eternal life. He insists though on all our affections. All our trust. All our confidence. All our hope. 
all our worship, all our devotion. That's where we, that's where we know. We don't cling to idols thinking that they're going to give you something that God is, would withhold from you. That's the first thing that we see about our king. He's not okay with just okay. Not at all. Second thing we learn of our king is that this king won't be reduced to some catastrophic insurance plan. Now, I'm going to have to explain. We'll get to what that point is communicating. Right, let's just let's walk. Look back in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 4. Now, Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. And he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. This is what's going on. Mesha had been conquered by King Ahab and had been made this kind of vassal king. His, he, he had this forced allegiance to Israel. And part of his requirement was he had to pay this tribute uh, annually probably. 100,000 lambs, 100,000, the wool of 100,000 rams. And so this is this is was the arrangement that's been going on for years now. Verse five. But when Ahab died, <laughs> the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. He he grew tired of of propping up the Israel's economy by supplying these commodities. And so he sees his opportunity. The window of opportunity has opened and he and he seizes it. Uh, he, we, we, we looked at this already in chapter 1 with King Ahaziah when Moab rebelled. And, and um, I'll go back there. But after Moab died, Mesha revolted. And, and Jehoram, you know, he kind of liked the way it was before. <laughs> he kind of liked all of the lambs and the sheep. That was very helpful um, and valuable thing. So he liked the previous arrangement. He liked the quiet, subservient Mesha better, better than a threatening, violent, um, defiant one. So verse 6, so King Jehoram marched out of Samaria that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to go a battle against Moab? So he decides, the king of Israel, Jehoram, decides to build this little coalition to go up and whip Mesha back into line, basically. Put him back in his place. And he goes to the king of Judah, the south, southern king, Jehoshaphat, and asks for his help. And Jehoshaphat is his usual compliant self. He's already participated in ventures with the king of Israel before. And he said, I will go, verse 7. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Verse 8. Then he said, by which way shall we march? And Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And so... They also get the, quote, king of Edom involved, who is, who is most likely a kind of a vassal king like the king of Moab. And together with their armies, they march south through Judah and then east across uh, below the Dead Sea. And then they come up to Moab from the south. But they, the troops, the pack animals that were with them, they trudge right into disaster. Look at verse uh, verse 9. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or the animals that followed them. They've completely exhausted the water supply they brought, and there's no water to be had around them. They don't see any springs. It's dried up. It's it's parched. They're on the brink of just total annihilation by by dehydration. 
and, and notice that in verse 10 what Jehoram attributes this disaster to, this dire situation to. He attributes it to the sovereignty of the Lord. Look, verse 10. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. He's basically saying, Here, we're going to die in the desert and all our armies with us. And what is Moab going to do? He's going to sweep in and he's going to take over our lands. He's going to take over our kingdoms. Because we're going to be gone. And, and what is, why? Because of, because of their foolishness? No. Because they're, they're doomed because God has it in for them. That's what he's saying. God must be against them. I just, I'll give you one little, this is kind of off the trail, but I, I want to, I put it in your outline. People, people love to talk about God's sovereignty when they've made a mess of their lives. We could do this. We, we despair and say that God has an end for us when we just have this trail of pattern of foolishness. We, we, we want to blame God. I would just say beware of people who cite God's sovereignty to excuse or accuse rather than to worship and adore. I mean, he's, he's attributing it to the Lord's sovereignty, but you can see his motive in doing so. He's, he's blaming God. A, a robust belief in the sovereignty of God is not to be a blame-shifting device. It, it, the mess that we've made of our lives is the mess that we've made of our lives. God's sovereignty should evoke trust, confidence, hope, faith, love, peace, praise, humility, repentance, joy. That's what a right understanding of the Lord's sovereignty involves. Desperation for God. Not blaming Passing the buck. That's just what he's doing though. Well Jehoshaphat he doesn't despair quite as easily as Jehoram verse 11. And Jehoshaphat said. Is there no prophet of the Lord here? Through whom we may inquire of Yahweh of the Lord. So when he's perplexed he turns to the word of the Lord. He turns to the Lord by saying this. He's, Is there a prophet? Then one of Jehoram's servants pipes up. Notice it's not Jehoram who says oh yeah we got this guy. No. One of the servants kind of overhears this and he chimes in. Uh, uh, verse 11, then one of the kings of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Elijah's protege is here. He's near us. Apparently that name rings a bell with Jehoshaphat. The northern king knows about this southern prophet as Elisha's reputation precedes him. So Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. He knew it. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. So he's apparently nearby because they're, they're about to die from dehydration. So they go down, probably south, to find Elisha. Why is he nearby? We're not told. Does he have a timeshare down there? I don't know. Or uh, he's just probably trailing behind this army, directed by the hand of God. But we're not, our curiosities aren't really aren't really answered here. But look at how this exchange unfolds. Verse 13. And Elisha said to the king of Israel. You see, there's no opening pleasantries. There's no, there's no introductory statement. No question that's, that's given. If the king's asked a question of Elisha, it's not recorded for us. The writer wants us to see the starkness and abruptness to Elisha's words here. So he says, Elisha said to the king of Israel, What? Have I to do with you? 
Why this sudden interest in what Yahweh says? You didn't care before. You didn't consult the Lord before you went into battle. Why now? And then he says, go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. Why not go to those Baal prophets that your mama fed and took such good care of? Why not go to those those bootlicking prophets that your dad kept around and, and kept around during his reign? Prophets for hire. Why not go to them? The king of Israel said to him, no, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Again, they're in a jam and he expresses his belief in the sovereignty of the Lord. But Elisha won't back down. And his response, verse 14, is measured and it's solemn and it's painfully blunt. You notice the oath formula that he gives, verse 14. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand... It's a solemn declaration of what he's about to say. And then he says, Were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. God's saying, I couldn't give a rip about you. I, I wouldn't give you the time of day were it not for the fact that the king of Judah, the Davidic king, Jehoshaphat was standing right next to you. That's harsh. <laughs> I mean, we, we sometimes I, you see people paint Elisha as the gentler, softer, kinder prophet. Elijah was the real fireball. That kind of just blows up right here and in other places too. But you think about what he's saying. Think about his words. What is the Lord saying here? He's saying... He's saying a number of things, and we'll come back to the the main thrust of what he's saying. But I wanted you to see this, is that one of the things he's saying is that that Jehoram is beyond the help of God's word. If it were not for Jehoshaphat. And that's a truly frightening implication. You can place yourself beyond the point of receiving help from God in his word. Where his word will do nothing for you. And this is the the next implication I want to draw out. It's this, is be sobered by the possibility of placing yourself outside the realm of God's help and direction. Now, you need to understand, I don't want to draw some false parallel here. Jehoram was not a believer in the Lord, a true believer in the Lord. From what we're told, from what we know of his life, he died and went to his eternal reward, which was hell. And and yet, yet, I mean, there is... There is application there for us. If you're not a true believer in the Lord, if your faith is not in Jesus Christ alone, God's word will offer no true help to you. I mean, coming to church and hearing a sermon and, you know, putting Bible verses on your fridge or a bumper sticker on your truck, that's not, that's not going to earn you points with God. That's not going to give you some kind of spiritual edge in life. That's, that's, that's not how it works. There, there is help, there is hope, there is, there is light in God's word, and that is available to you, but it's not available to you outside of your relationship with, with a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'll say more about this in a moment, but, but this, is, this, is what you, this is what you need to know this help, this direction from God and his word. You need to know that God's son, Jesus Christ, the, the, the king... God's son came into this earth, was born to a virgin, lived a 
absolutely perfect life, was tempted to sin just like we are, but he never sinned. Lived a perfect, righteous, completely obedient life before God and before men. And yet he was treated as a criminal by men and he died accordingly. But it wasn't just men who killed Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, God's God's wrath for all our sin was poured out upon his own son. And he died as our substitute. This is why the Bible repeatedly says in the New Testament that, that Jesus died for us in our place. He was buried after he died. And he was... Just He was raised on the third day just as it was promised, just as he said he would be. And he appeared to many witnesses, just giving proof that, of the historicity, the, the, the actual bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then he ascended to heaven to be with the Father, returning to the Father. Well, it's, it's that good news, that gospel, that, that though we deserve death for our sins, we can know life in Jesus Christ and forgiveness our sins of our sins because he's paid the penalty for our sins. And so this is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. He made him, God made him, Christ, who knew no sin. He didn't sin at all. To be sin on our behalf, taking our sin on himself on the cross, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, God treated Christ as if, as if he had lived our wretched, sinful, wicked lives. And yet he treats us as if we lived his perfect, righteous life. And he judges us accordingly. And if we put our trust in Jesus and what he alone has done, then God looks at us and he sees the righteousness of Jesus. The perfect life of Christ. All our sin is gone. It's cast as far as the east is from the west. It's forgiven. It's atoned for. The wrath of God towards us has been satisfied in Jesus. And so it's only in that relationship and that if you put your trust in Christ that the word and all the stuff will have any meaning if not it's just empty ritual without new life in Jesus Christ and so you can't know the riches of God's grace and the and his help and his direction and in life until you've trusted in the death and resurrection of his son and so if you haven't I urge you to do that today that's that's most important now, if you know Christ, though, it's still possible as believers, there's a sense in which we can miss out on what God wants for us. We can live like Jehoramites. We can, we can seek God only for our convenience. We can treat God flippantly. We can only be interested in God when, when there's trouble to escape in our lives. We can only want to use God's word in the moment of our for our advantage but have no interest in conforming to it over the long term we 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 know that tendency in our hearts jehoram treated god and his word like it was some kind of catastrophic insurance plan you 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 know you may need it at some point but you hope you never have to turn to it and use it do you treat god and his word as something only for emergencies but not for the normal days is there any day in which you don't need to hear what God says? That's, that's, we need to be aware of if we, can, if we honestly say, yeah, there's a lot of days. Is God simply an airbag for the disasters of your life? You hope you never need him, but it's nice to know he's there if you do. That's, that's not how we're to live. 
God is king. He's living king. And he wants us to go to him. He wants us to seek him. He wants us to, to listen to his word and to cling to him closely. That's the second thing we learn about our king here. Third, third trait of our king. This king has a tendency to go above and beyond in answering our requests. Back at verse 14, the end of verse 14, again, remember, were it not for that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now, verse 15, bring me a musician. He wants to hear some music. Now, we're not told why. Um, it's, it's, I don't know why this is even recorded for us, but I don't think this is some kind of mystical, meditative experience. Don't picture some scene out of some little... Uh, incense shop in Albuquerque, New Mexico with rain stick music in the background or something. I don't, I don't think that's the picture here. Uh, but he, probably worshiping the Lord, quieting his soul with this turmoil of his confrontation. But he, but he says, and, and when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And then the word of the Lord speaks, and it speaks his double promise. Verse 16, and he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. So there's not going to be a storm, but there's going to be water. It's going to be miraculously provided. Verse 18, this is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. He tells them what what their role is going to be. You go through and you wreak havoc in the land of Moab. You destroy, you cut the trees down, you mess up their drinking water. I know it sounds brutal, but this is the Lord's sovereignty authority, sovereign authority being exercised against this rebel nation. You destroy their land. You, as you destroy the cities, you take the rocks, you take the stones, and you, and you destroy their crops with them, and you litter their fields with these stones so that it's no good. And so water will be miraculously provided, and Moab will be miraculously defeated. That's the double promise. Will there be a double fulfillment of this promise? Verse 20. The next morning. About the time of offering the sacrifice. Behold, water came from the direction of Edom. Till the country was filled with water. And we learn there's a connection between the water and the winning over Moab here. That the water was not only God's means of keeping them alive and keeping them from being dehydrated, but it was also the means of of beginning the process of trampling down Moab. Verse 21. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought one another and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. We just walk in and clean up. They've already killed themselves. And it's evidenced by this bloody field down there. They've, just sh- they've shed their own blood. They turned on one another. And they, and they drew their own blood. Let's go clean up. 
So they go running down to gather spoils, and instead what they do is they run into swords, verse 24. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went, and they overthrew the cities. And on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kirharaseth. And the slingers surrounded and attacked it. Everything Elisha predicted seems to be taking shape here. Moab is at the breaking point. They're backed into the corner. No escape. Now just, we'll finish the story in just a second. Just hold that thought for a moment. What, what are we learning about our king here? What is, we learn a lot of things. But what is something I want to draw your attention to? We learn something about the tendency of the Lord here. And look in verse 18 again. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. This being the supplying of water for the parched army. This, he's saying, rehydrating Israel's troops and pack animals, that ain't nothing for God. That's small potatoes, easy cheesy. It's nothing for the Lord. So he says, He will also then give the Moabites into your hand. So he's not going to limit himself to this trivial work of giving you water. He's also handing Moab over as well. You're you're only asking to survive through the night, get water so you can drink, and then go fight the Moabites in your own strength. Because you know if you die there, Moab's just going to come take over. But you know, I'm doing more than that. I'm going to give you the Moabites. I'm going I'm to make it easy. I'm going to clear the way for you. So God not only addresses the immediate need, but he gives more than was even asked. That is so typical of the Lord, isn't it? That we, we come to him seeking grace, and yet we receive grace upon grace, on top of grace, John says. His grace is given extravagantly, even for the likes of these not-so-faithful Israelite kings. His power, His omnipotence are on display here. Giving water to a thirsty army, that's not grand enough for the Lord. But we also see His generosity, His mercy highlighted here. But I just the implication is this. Consider how many times single requests have been met with multiple blessings in your life. This is typical vintage Yahweh. Haven't you found God to be just ridiculously good to you? That's just how he is. We could go around this room and spend the rest of the day telling stories of times that we asked God for help in one way, and yet he answered in ways we couldn't have even comprehended. That's, it's, he's so good. And I'm not, saying, I'm not saying we don't experience genuinely hard things in life. That's not, that's not it. But I'm saying God has a tendency, even in those hard things, to, to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to his power at work within us. As Paul says to the Ephesians. So, so we see that. There's, there's one more thing I want us to see about these verses real quick. And we touched on it earlier. And you may be reading this and you're kind of getting a little, a little perturbed by, by the scene. You're kind, of, you're kind of muttering under your breath, why... Why does this idolatrous rascal Jehoram deserve this kindness from God? And you know, he doesn't deserve it. But but why does he get this double blessing? Why is it? 
Remember? Because of Jehoshaphat. That's the only reason. God says, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't give any I wouldn't give you the time of day. But because of Jehoshaphat. Well, who's Jehoshaphat? Jehoshaphat's the king of Judah, we know this. What is the, what's so important about Judah? Well, Judah's the line from which David came. Judah's David's line. He's the Davidic king, the heir of David's throne. He's a link in the chain of God's covenant faithfulness that cannot be broken. So God is, he's, he's, he's going to keep the Davidic line. He's going to preserve that line. And so this is, his, this is Jehoram's only, this is the only reason he receives this mercy from God. He receives these benefits because of his relationship to another. Yeah, you know, I just say that is a great picture of how that is, how it is with us. Jer- Justin even alluded to this earlier. We have this 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 mighty king who has conquered our enemy, our greatest enemy, uh, the devil, the death, and sin, and and he's conquered. He's led the way. He's led captives. Our only hope, if we want to receive any good gift from God, anything from God, our only hope is that we stand next to the Davidic king, Jesus, son of David, son of God. The descendant of David, the descendant of Jehoshaphat. And, and, and that is not, that's not just some kind of sketchy connection. That is exactly the point that the New Testament makes in giving those genealogies. Saying your only hope in Christ is because Jesus is the son of David. He's the son of God. God is keeping his promise. And so we don't deserve the, the crumbs that fall off of God's table. But yet we enjoy the incredible blessings and grace because Jesus stands beside us. So I'd say this. Look to Jesus as your only hope of receiving massive mercies when we don't even deserve heaven's crumbs. That's the reality. But we stand next to Jesus. And he stands next to us. We are clothed in his righteousness. Identified with him. This is what John was saying in that chapter. We are in him. And so we enjoy these mercies that we do not deserve. Are you in him? I beg you again, if you're not, you can be in him today. Pray, God, I confess I'm a sinner. I am hopeless without you, but I I need you. I need what Christ, I I need Christ. I need what he's done for me. And you can be saved today and you can have new life and you can be in, you can walk out of this room in Christ. If you do that, I want to talk to you. I'd love to pray with you and, and rejoice with you. So, last thing. We need to see one more thing. One more thing about this king. It's in this passage. This king has an unusually light and easy yoke. Again, I'll, we'll, we'll see why I'm saying that. Uh, but just, just walk with me through this. So, it looks like the writing's on the wall for Moab. He's been pushed back to the last standing city of any size in Moab. Everything else has been destroyed. The, the land has just been devastated. The armies of Moab have been have been decimated. And so Mesha has basically two desperate plays left. These two Hail Marys that he's going to, to try to push back against Israel. So verse 26 of chapter 3. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom. He looks for the weakest part of the line and he figures it's probably Edom, so he takes 700 of his strongest swordsmen, fiercest fighters, and they go right at that weakest part of the line, 
the text says, but they could not do it. Fail. Now he turns to the last option. This is the nuclear option. Verse 27. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. (laughs) Takes his firstborn son, the next future king of Moab, and he goes to the wall and he burns his son's flesh in this offering to his to the god Kamash for everyone to see. And this this awful, horrendous, cruel, barbaric act, one that we're familiar with in our headlines even today, it works. The Israelite coalition turns around and walks off the field of battle. Look at the text, verse 27. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. What in the world just happened? I mean, we seem to be kind of tracking along with this chapter and what God was accomplishing, and then, whoa, didn't see that coming. How, how does the story end this way? Who wins? I can't even tell. And how? How did Mesh's human sacrifice bring an end to the fighting? The writer's explanation is in that little clause of verse 27. And there came great wrath against Israel. Now that leaves us with the big question. Whose wrath? Whose indignation? Why? I don't like to do this often in preaching, but I'm just going to resort, kind of um, retreat to a preacher's cliche and there are four views on this passage. <laughs> we, I think that's kind of a cop out a lot of times, and we don't want to pick one. But I, I just let me just give you, I mean, some ways that this is understood. The first two views would say this is divine wrath, and and one would say it's it's the Lord's wrath. I mean, that, this word that's used in here, particularly when it's used with that adjective, that modifier, great, is typically used for the Lord Yahweh's wrath, indignation. But but why is the Lord angry all of a sudden with Israel after all that's transpired? Why? And, and he gives no, no indication of why he's angry with them, which is unusual. So I don't, I don't think that it's that. And, and, it's, and it, doesn't, there is no, it doesn't say explicitly that it's God's wrath. It just says wrath. Another option would be that it's a different de- deity, the God of the Moabites, Kamash. Generally... Uh, so, so maybe it's that. Maybe Mesha sacrifices Kamash, becomes angry, and because Israel, and it causes Israel to flee in panic. Now, I just that can't be right. I mean, what we what we know of kings already, the writer is not going to give an inch of God's sovereignty away to this pagan god that doesn't really exist and isn't real. I mean, that's just not happening. I mean, this would have to be some crazy insertion by some Moabite. Redactor or something like that. And I don't think that's what's going on. Second two views say that this wrath is human. One would say it's, it's the Moabite indignation. It would be this. That Mesha's troops, they respond. They see this, this, see this desperate act and sacrificing their future crown prince. They, they see him 
And it just evokes in them this kind of superhuman fury and it just scares the Israelites out of their wits and sends them running. That, that the king's sacrifice inspired the Moabites to just hate Israel more and fight more intensely. I'm thinking of a scene from Braveheart here, if you've seen the movie. And, and then the fourth option is that this is referring to Israelite indignation. The, the, the view takes the Hebrew preposition there that, that is translated against in the ESV. It could be translated upon, and that just depends on the context. But if the indignation is upon Israel, it could mean that Israel is manifesting indignation. That, that this would be referring, referring to just the horror, the, the indignation, that the disgust that Israel felt at watching this act in front of them. They, they just quit the battle and they walked away without total victory. I, I think either view three or four is, is, is most likely. I lean towards view four, though not real heavily. Um, just by the, the coming immediately after the report of Mesha's sacrifice seems like there's some kind of reaction. But, but let's just back up. And so what? This chapter paints this vivid contrast for us. And this is what I want you to really see. And let me make it, try to make it clear. There's three kings in their armies that are at the end of their rope. They're about to die of dehydration. They're going out to fight the Moabites. They're about to get smeared because they're, gonna, they're, they, they're so thirsty. Well, led by Jehoshaphat, they find Elisha, the prophet of the Lord, to inquire of the Lord, of Yahweh. Through Yahweh's word, the prophet of Elisha, Prophet Elisha, they receive help, they receive assurance from God. So that's one, one scene. Then you contrast that to this. The, the clutches of death are closing in on the king of Moab. He's facing total eradication. His next to last desperate option fails, verse 26, the swordsman. What can he do to get his God to pay attention and come to his aid? Sacrifice his firstborn son, the crown prince of the people on the city wall. Maybe that will, maybe the stench of burning human flesh will arouse Kamash to care and to act. Verse 27 is what seeking God looks like in paganism. The, the deity has to be coerced, manipulated, sometimes in very costly ways. Even lukewarm, non, non-faithful, not-so-faithful Israelites would be repulsed and horrified by that. And so do you see what the message is for Israel and for us? It's just, it's just as the Lord says, see, see where pagans go when they're desperate? See what road idolatry will lead you down? Do you realize the incredible matchless gift you have in, in, in the God who lives and hears and speaks and helps and guides? Do you, you realize the treasure you have in me? Do you, do you realize that you never need to go to these links to get me to hear you? I give you my word freely. I've given you a prophet and he was trailing right behind you. He wasn't even far away. I, I'm, I'm available to you if you'll just turn to me and ask. I'd say the implication is this. Rejoice that we never have to resort to this kind of bloody bribery to get God, God's ear or his mouth or him to speak to us. Our king has this unusually easy yoke unlike any other in any other religion. Don't believe me? You try paganism. You try Islam. 
I don't really want you to try these things, but you understand what I'm saying. Try Hinduism. Try Mormonism. Try Roman Catholicism. Try Eastern Orthodoxy. You try, you try these, these false religions. Our king is our father. That's what John was saying. This is why he tells us to flee idolatries. You, you are in him, the God, the only living God. You're in him. And if you have a father who delights to speak to us and to give us good gifts and to enjoy. He's, he's not far. He's not aloof. He's not uncaring. He's near. We can so often miss that. His yoke is not heavy and burdensome. His yoke is easy and light. And Jesus made this appeal, this invitation, Matthew 11, 28, 29. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, laboring heavy laden under this, this burdensome distortion of, of Israel's religion where it became just about this oppressive keeping God off your back. By, by following rules, he says, come to me. Your labor, your heavy laden, I give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. So is your soul tired? Go to Jesus for rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We look to Christ. We, we need Christ. We have Christ. He's our only hope. We're going to sing those words in just a moment. All I have is Christ. And let your heart be rejoiced with that. But don't think that that's all I have. Like, that's, that's all I got, I guess. No. That's all we need. That's all we ever need. Whatever you're facing. One final encouragement from just thinking, I don't know what your week's been like. I don't know what kind of torturous trial you might have been going through this week or things that you're anticipating in the week to come. The God who was present to help and give power and enabling to God's people in 2 Kings 3 is the same king that reigns today. And in fact, we have the greater resource. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And so God is can give you power. It seems what you're facing seems impossible. It seems it seems insurmountable, but whatever you're facing in your marriage, in parenting, in, in, at work, in praying, and working, and evangelizing, in, in going, and growing, whatever it is, God is, God is able. God is able. Be encouraged by that. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that we would, even as we, these words that will be on the screen, they come out of our lips and we sing this in response to you, Lord. I pray that our hearts would be cheered um, as we reflect on the, the, the riches that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, it's our identification with him, that we are in him. And as those who are in Christ, God, may we, may we stop clinging and hugging the idols that we've cherished for so long, like little security blankets. We, we, we trust you, yes, Lord, but we also we, we turn to these other things when things are hard. And, and we look to these things for comfort and security and happiness and pleasure. Things, all these things that we should find in you alone. So God, help us to relinquish our idols and delight and run to you with, 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 with emptied arms and yet open arms, embracing you as our only hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.